This podcast takes you into the rarely discussed realm of the personal decisions leaders have taken that have influenced their business decisions and developed them into the leaders they are today. The refreshingly honest experiences of those who have been very successful provide an insight into the challenges they faced, the successes they achieved, and the people who influenced them along their journey. Here's our host, Mark Silvera. Hey, welcome to Business Made Personal. We're so pleased today to have Damien Coates with us. Damien is the CEO of Dual Asia Pacific. Just a little bit of background on the man. Damien began his career in 1989 at FAI in Australia as a reinsurance accountant and spent time in internal audit. I feel sorry for you already, Damien. He then transferred to the underwriting function in 1994, where he commenced underwriting professional indemnity and DNO insurance. In 1997, he was recruited to MMI Alliance and set up their professional lines business prior to managing the regional financial lines portfolio for AIG, where he moved to the UK in 1999. Moving to the UK, Damien held the position of Vice President at AIG and was responsible for AIG's commercial management liability portfolio, not just in the UK, but also in Ireland and Africa. Damien then joined the Jewel Group in 2003 and founded Jewel in Australia in 2004. And I remember that happening, Damien. In 2011, Damien was seconded as Dual Group CEO for two years, where he oversaw the global operations in 14 countries. He then returned to Australia in 2013 and drove the expansion of Dual throughout the Asia-Pacific region as the CEO of Dual Asia-Pacific and as the deputy CEO of Dual International. Over the last 18 years, Damien has overseen the largely organic growth of the business throughout Australia, New Zealand, and Asia. He holds a Bachelor of Business degree from the University of Technology in Sydney, an Associate Diploma in Accounting, and is a member of the National Institute of Accountants. Welcome to Business Made Personal, Damien. So, Damien, you qualified as an accountant. What ever possessed you to get into insurance? Pretty much, um, I finished high school and uh, you know, my marks weren't great. I had to find a job and my dad had always had the one bit of advice that, you know, uh, he worked in sales all, all his life. He had a gift of the gab and that's something I sort of possessed as well. And my dad sort of gave me the one really good bit of advice that if you, you know, if you want to work your way through the corporate um, world, you've got to understand the numbers and you'll only get so far with the, with the gift of the gab and a personality, you need to be understand the P&L and the balance sheet. And it was from that, he, that was the encouragement that got me into doing a, um, my accounting studies. And, and I'm so thankful I've done it because I've always had to be able to understand the numbers is such a key part of, of it's great to be able to communicate, but you've got to be able to understand the numbers to be able to do something with them. So, Yeah, absolutely. So you're not the typical insurance executive. You've got a number of uh, bands that you wear on your wrist You've always had the long hair as long as I've known you, and that's going back quite quite a way. What was the, the specific thought process you had behind that? Were you, were you looking to establish a new regime within the executive space, or did you have a particular view that made you decide to go down that track? You know, coming from working in corporates where you have to look and behave in a certain way, that the whole idea of setting up Dual was, was to look at, at the only constant is change. And just because you look that way, you have to do things one way. There is a better way, and that is to express yourself and be honest. And uh, I always liked long hair, and so I started to grow my hair. And uh, I've had it for all the years, other than the two years where I I shaved my head off for, uh, to raise money for black dogs. And and also, you know, the bands. A lot of that is again is part of my advocacy with mental health. I wear Beyond Blue and Black Dog. I've been wearing these bands for you know for 15 years just for this conversation, Mark. You know, because it's all about awareness. And people ask the question, "Where's that band come from?" And I I get a chance to have a conversation about mental health and the importance of charity supporting it. You know, if you're passionate about something, as I was with my hair, or I am with mental health, then express it. And it's really about being expressive. And I love that view, right? Because we just don't do it enough. You know, we all feel like we've got to fit into this specific box. And I love the fact that you took that out of the equation and decided to do something different. And I hope more and more people follow your lead in that respect. You know, thinking about the insurance industry and your time in it, you know, you kicked off in, in 1989. What has the industry given you that you never expected to get out of it? Oh, the industry's given me everything. It is the most wonderful um, industry to work on. We all fell into it. I remember I finished high school, I had to get a job. 
you know, bummed around for the summer and then picked up the, as it was then, the Sydney Morning Herald to go through the ads. And I found this insurance job and applied for it and didn't know anything about insurance. We fell into it as so many of us have. But what a wonderful industry it is in terms of, you know, it helps others, of course, that the, the claims that we pay actually help and solve people's problems. But more, it's a it's an industry where you can really use your personality to go ahead. And it's a very people-driven industry. Communication is everything. And, you know, there's a lot of characters. It's an industry that it is, you know, it does so many good things for society, but it's also an industry where you meet some great people and uh, have some laughs along the way. So, yeah, I'm so glad that I found insurance. And I've only got my, you know, my 17-year-old son who's doing his HSC at the moment. His grades aren't going to be anything. And he talks about what he may want to do. And he says, Dad, you're... Insurance seems good. You know, I know you've got to do a lot of meetings, but you do seem to be really happy and you have good friendships. And, and I said, yeah, it's a great industry to meet people. You get to learn. You get to solve problems. And, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Oh, it's one of the best-kept secrets, I think. We both agree on that. You know, looking at, at your career, and, and I'm I absolutely gobsmacked of the roles that you've held, you would have held them at quite a young age, I would imagine. How did you get to those positions, you know? Give us a bit of a view on that to start with. You know, I'm a big believer you've got to work hard and they're the only, they're, nothing comes to you without hard work and you've got to be prepared to make sacrifices and have discipline. Um, you know, I'm a big believer of work hard, play hard, but it starts with work hard. And, uh, you know, I started and I was studying uh, part-time. I did eight years of part-time study initially to get my accounting qualification and then another three years to get my business degree with a marketing major. And those eight years, I was working, you know, eight till five, then jump on a train across the uni, start my lectures from six till nine, get home at 10 o'clock, and then back up in the morning, six o'clock, all the way through Saturdays. So I would I'd have a quiet Friday night, Saturday night. Saturday was my day studying so that I'd make sure on a Saturday night I could party with my friends and then Sunday, have a rest day, and then start it all over. And uh, I knew that that work ethic was going to be so important and, you know, working hard, asking questions, learning and being respectful in the way you communicate with others has really been the values that I've held. And it got me to the point at the, you know, the age of 29, I was transferred by AOG to run their financial lines in the UK. And there was a lot of, it was Lloyd's, it was the, it was a big business. And what's this Aussie convict got this job? And I really had to use my personality and show that I was going to work harder than anyone else to win people's respect because you can't move forward in your career if people don't respect you and, and people want to be led by you and people believe in you. And it was from that, after that experience in the UK, you know, I had the privilege to come and do a startup. And, you know, Leo and I started the business in Spring Street in a service office with six people, uh, four of which I'd only met, you know, through an interview process a month before. And we went off on a journey of, you know, the last 18 years to build a business that now employs, you know, close to 200 people, 350 million in premium, nine offices, four countries. It's been such a journey. And all of those, you know, steps were done at a young age. I was only 32 when I set up Jewel. I'm so thankful that I've, I've had the opportunities at, at a young age to, uh, to take these leadership positions, but I make it really clear, nothing comes without hard work. You've got to be prepared to roll up the sleeves, work hard, ask questions, be respectful and learn. My path to, for everything I've done, I try to impart that on all of the wonderful young people. You know, I had a call today. We've had, you know, 22 people who have joined us in the last part of lockdowns and getting to know them and understand their journey. And People often ask me that question. I, I give the same answer. You know, go to work and work hard, and it will put you in very good stead. And, and if you don't know, ask the question. So you're a 29-year-old. You hop on that flight to the UK. You get there. You probably knew a couple of people, but you wouldn't have known a lot of people. Did you feel like you were an imposter in this whole world that you hadn't experienced before? Yeah, absolutely. You know, London is the centre of the world of insurance, and as DNO is one of the most complicated classes of insurance, we were insuring US NASDAQ listed company and US securities law was incredibly complicated and I knew nothing about it. And, you know, I just went to those, those principles of I worked incredibly hard. I researched, I read law, I went to every seminar. I would be a sponge of anyone who was around who knew. I'd just listen, learn, and then eventually had the confidence to, you know, if, if someone came to me and I could show that I, I had done my homework, I'd worked harder than anyone else, and I, I could express and show that I knew, I knew what I was talking about. 
that's the only way I've found you win respect is to show that you've worked really hard and you've learned and you're able to communicate in an effective way. It was a heck of a challenge. You know, you're going into the centre of the world in the insurance marketplace and here's a you know, 29-year-old Aussie. What do they know about a US securities class action? And, and you know, we at that time in really 2001, we were dealing with the accounting irregularity scandals around the world. Enron, WorldCom, there was accounting collapses going on all across the world. And, you know, try, I had to be there and understand revenue recognition and impairment of assets. And you really, you know, I remember sitting there and having meetings with the CFO of Vodafone before working out whether we could you know, grant their DNO insurance. And yeah, it was an incredibly challenging time, but it, it all came from, you know, hard work and being prepared to go that extra yard uh, to show that you, you've done the research and you know it as well as anyone else. Well, your model worked really well, mate. You've done so well since being a 29-year-old in the UK. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, which intrigued me, you said, you know, you've got to make sacrifices. If you think about that time and if you think about the time since, what sort of sacrifices have you had to make? You know, I guess the initial first sacrifice that I had to make was that, you know, when we decided that um, I was, you know, going to come back in, in October 2003 to set up Jewel and my, my firstborn son was due in January and my son was born in January and, and we had a business opening up in April and uh, and you can't travel with a child for three months. So, uh, you know, those first first month I was with my, with my son, but for two months, you know, I had I was away from my wife and my son to try to build a business that was going to be our adventure for us to all come back and be in Australia. And, and, and obviously, we've, we've been able to do that. But, you know, the last 17 years, of course, there's been sacrifices with the amount of travel that I've done. I, you know, historically have traveled 48 weeks a year. And, and naturally, that period of two years where I was, I was commuting to London to do the global CEO role, where I was three weeks in London, three weeks in Australia. That was a lot of sacrifices in terms of my time with my family. But I always, the way I was able to process and work through that is, is it's not about quantity, it was about quality. And really, when I'm with my kids, it's about being present and enjoying them and, and making sure that you're doing, you know, you're there to support and make sure it's, it's about your relationship with with your children and being close and connected and supporting them. But yeah, it was definitely, there were some sacrifices to, you know, to build a business of this size and, and do it from a startup. It was, it's a lot of hard work, but you just got to try to find that balance. And I really thrive now. And, and I think I always have done as good job as, as possible that when I wasn't traveling, I will spend as, as much time working from home and, and being able to uh, do a lot of stuff with my kids. And I definitely see that as a, as a key priority. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of talk about it thing called work-life balance. I'm not sure that actually exists. You know, sometimes I think you've got to devote more time to work because it demands it. Sometimes you've got to devote more time to to life because it demands it, right? So you sound like during that time, you've managed to find the formula that works for your family. Yeah, it's all about prioritising and really being present, I think. And that's, the you know, when I'm in the work zone, I'm really focused on work. But as soon as I'm not, then I really will focus and on the kids. And when I go on holidays with the kids, we go skiing, we ski a lot, we surf a lot. I really, you know, out, I might check my email for half an hour in the morning before they get up and half an hour after they go to bed. But otherwise, I want to be powdering the mountain with them or, or ripping into some waves. So. Yeah, brilliant. Hey, I want to change tack for just a little minute. So you talked about, uh, you know, the travel and you've talked about some of those issues. Thinking back on your career, what's been the most challenging time for you in your career? The most challenging time, you know, was no doubt that Sunday morning in May 2013 when, you know, we woke up on and the front page of the Herald Sun in, in Melbourne was the revelation that a $17 million fraud had been perpetrated. Our claims manager had stolen $17 million and there it was, flashed up front page of the Herald Sun of you know the people living in a mansion and arrested. And that was, uh, without doubt, I got the call at about 2 a.m. that morning because we, it, had bro- uh, we, it had broken in the media and the crisis management that went on for you know really uh, the next two years and, and all the way through to uh, seeing justice and, and spending six days in the witness box uh, being intensely scrutinised before they were they were sentenced to ten years and twelve years respectively for for what they they had committed. But yeah, without doubt, Mark, the greatest challenge was taking that call. And you know, we had a problem that we may not ever be able to recover from. We have, and we were able to get the money back for the insurers and justice has been served. But definitely, the greatest challenge was 
waking up that morning and go, okay, what can we do from here? And if I'm right in what I know about it, it wasn't just an employee that perpetrated the act. It was a friend of yours, right? You had a relationship with those people. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and when we, the morning that we found and we traveled and, you know, I had a horse riding at my property in the Blue Mountains as part of my 40th birthday. They were Mm. invited into my home to celebrate my 40th birthday. And at that time, we were able to work out they'd already stolen $7 million, which was, yeah, it was, it had an incredible impact on so many people and and many, many people in Jewel who had looked up to Josie and classified them as friends and the betrayal and and it took a long time where you had to have a lot of people in dual have, have seek help and have support and, and see psychologists to deal with that. There was a lot of trauma that went. The financial part was, thank goodness, we got it. We identified it. We were able to um, get the money back and, and ensure that policyholders weren't impacted. But it was more the, the betrayal that, uh, that had scars for many years. And that's why the pursuit of justice was so important to, to lead a good example for, for everyone in dual, the community, and you've got to do the right thing. And you guys did really well to handle that because that was a super challenging, highly publicised issue. Did you have any sort of impact out of that? Did you have any people saying, Bailey, Charlie, we're out of here. We're not going to deal with Jewel anymore? You know, I think, Mark, the, the key thing is, and it's been, you know, it's always been one of the pillars that I live my life by is, and what we tell our kids is honesty is the best policy always. There is never a time not to tell the truth. And I think the fact that we were open and honest and, and we weren't trying to deny that we owned it and we were going to do everything we could to ensure that the funds were recovered, which they were, and that uh, no policy holder, no broker, uh, clients were impacted. That open and honesty and transparency, the fact that then I, you know, committed and, and spent a lot of time of doing, you know, keynote addresses on the lessons learned because the last thing, you know, we, we suffered the third biggest corporate fraud in the country's history at that time. And so I was very comfortable when, you know, various industry groups and, and CEOs from other industries asked me to come and share my story because I didn't want it to happen to anyone else. And there was a lot of lessons learned in terms of vendor management and, and control checks that you can have. And yeah, very proud to be able to, to share what happened to us to, to help and make sure it wouldn't happen for others. I was sitting on the outside of that. You know, I was looking in as, as all outsiders do. One of the things that I do recall thinking was that the rest of your employees really gathered around you. There was no breaking of the ranks. There was no, you know, pointing the fingers. I was quite surprised because I've been involved in some of those corporate fiascos myself where it all turns to mush, right? So how did that happen? How did you manage to keep the group together? Yeah, I think the uh, the key thing was honesty and trust. And so we told everyone at day one, this is what we didn't try to. We had everyone in the organization as, as part of, of the, the journey forward. And the only way you could be part of the journey forward is you had to know all the facts. And so, you know, that first 24, 48 hours, we took everyone through uh, the company exactly what had happened. And, and it, you know, the, the most importantly, we, we had recovered the funds. Carriers weren't impacted. Our insurers weren't impacted. We had the great support of our parent. Uh, we were part of an international group in Hyperion that was absolutely there and committed and support us through that process. And I think, you know, really that honesty and transparency, even with the regulators. I remember, you know, that day I was on the phone to ASIC, I was on the phone to APRA, I was on the phone to, I think I did 172 calls to CEOs of every single broker in Australia because you just had to be honest and explain what had happened and what you were going to do uh, to solve the situation. I think that was the key is, is bringing everyone in our team into the issue and explain to them what our path of how we were going to deal with the issue and identify the things that we couldn't control, uh, but the things that we could control, we weren't going to hide. We we're going to be honest and explain to brokers exactly what we've done. And if, if anyone had questions, we were happy to take it. You know what, Mark? Quite often, uh, a lot of people often ask me, there must have been so many questions coming at you. And I said, well, there actually wasn't because we'd laid everything out. And if you tell the truth and you present the facts of everything that actually happened, then you've got nowhere to hide because the facts are out there. And, you know, a lot of it when, you know, initially there was a lot of stuff from competitors and and people who weren't fans of Jewel that were trying to, you know, throw some mud. And quite often brokers would say, uh, no, that's not right. This is what Damien said. The blanket got thrown over it. It's amazing. The greatest you know, blanket for any room or innuendo is the truth. And if you tell the <laughs> truth, you know, 
I think the other part about it is, and you would never say this, but I will, I think your credibility and your reputation in the market over many, many years really stood the business in good stead. You've always had, from what I've seen, you've always had that view on life. You've always been upfront about A, what you're doing and B, how you go about doing it, right? You're not one of these people that I've seen that cloisters their, their IP, oh, we're not sharing this anywhere else. And I think that probably would have been a major part of it, certainly from a breaking perspective, which is where I was at the time. We always have been that view with, you know, 2% of companies purchasing management liability. We as an industry have to get it to 100%. Businesses shouldn't be operating. And so trying to, you know, I, I would often say to brokers, I really don't care whether you get management liability through Chubb or AOG or us, but let's just get everyone buying management liability because businesses will go bust. They may not have crime insurance. You know, I'm someone... No one's a greater advocate of crime insurance than myself. So, and you know, and a lot of people did joke and go, "Geez, you're the only person who could tell us to turn a seventeen million dollar fraud into a positive to, to buy more crime insurance." But I go, "Well, it's a lesson learned, and there's a proof in the pudding, and there was no greater indication." So, yeah, um, I just think we as an industry have to deal with these uninsured exposures. Cyber is the next one that we're all facing and grappling, and go, "How do we work it out?" And I go, "Just get cyber insurance, whether it's with us or with Charb or with someone else. Just don't open your business, don't do things because things something will happen, and you, you know." I've seen businesses time and time go bust because they haven't. And that's what our, our industry fulfills such an important role. And, you know, we talk about climate change and the need to come up with solutions for the climate challenges. David Howden, our group CEO, was presenting in Glasgow on the weekend at COP26 and explaining the challenges that we have to do to come up with dealing with in, these increasing natural perils. It's a fact. Yeah. We've yeah. got challenges on mental health. The industry is not dealing with providing solutions to, and these are things to celebrate, Mark, because there's so much opportunity for the insurance industry to be that solution. And that's what, you know, I love our industry. We've got to keep challenging and stretching ourselves because society in every fabric is changing and we just need to make sure we're keeping up with it. Oh, I'm 100% with you. Ladies and gentlemen, we're speaking with Damien Coates, who's the CEO of Dual Asia Pacific. Damien, you mentioned the mental health side of things. I want to talk a little bit about your personal experience with mental health. Uh, In an insurance business interview, you mentioned that your, and I quote, your first experience with anxiety was in 1999. You said, my parents separated when I was 13, and as the eldest child, I always felt a heavy responsibility as the glue between the family. So when I decided to move to England to advance my career and to see the world, I was overcome with anxiety as to who would look out for them. I'm just wondering how you dealt with that, because that's a huge responsibility on anybody, never mind someone that's living in a completely different country. It was my first experience with depression and came in such a, an unusual way. And, you know, I had a very normal upbringing, a loving family, um, but yes, my parents did separate and I was the the one that there was to protect and support my, my younger brothers and deal with the conflicts of, of my parents and so forth. And, you know, then having that opportunity to move to England and, and there I was thinking this is the most exciting adventure of my life. And six weeks before I was about to get on the plane, I woke up one morning, I couldn't get out of bed. I was crying uncontrollably. I had no energy. I was lethargic. I couldn't do anything. And my mum, you know, generationally didn't really know much about mental health. We're talking about 1999 and mm. took me to the local GP. And through that, I went to see a psychologist and, and over that next six weeks and, you know, communication for me, there's, there's three pillars for me in good mental health, but number one is communication and pillar for everything in life is communication, but definitely for the mental health. And by working with a psychologist, I could work out why my, my anxiety was coming from. It was this fear of abandonment that I was, how could I be so selfish to move to England and my family unit would collapse? They wouldn't be able to survive. And through communication with a a professional to be able to understand my emotions and and really actually come up with solutions to go well Damien what's the worst thing if if something happens to your family you come home and you know that was through communication and actually seeing a psychologist to help me work through something that I was I had this haze I wasn't able to see trees the woods I was I was confused and really communication and helping me break things down understand why I was feeling the feelings and it helped me be able to deal with it and, and develop the strength to, to get on and, and go over to the UK and and you know that chapter was my first experience with depression and it was a very scary and frightening period but I got to learn there that through communication it's going to always be a very key part of managing mental health. 
this is, you were 29 at this stage? Yep. Yeah, 29. So that wouldn't have been very common. I mean, you and I are similar ages. You know, you never really heard much about mental health in those days. Did you feel as though that you were failing somehow or did you feel as though you were, how did you feel is what I'm trying to ask you. Until I, I completely debilitating. I had no, I was crying uncontrollably. I couldn't concentrate. I could, I just was flat. I remember on my going away party, I was in the bathroom crying most of the night. I couldn't even engage with people. So, but to take that first step and, and go and see someone and put my hand up and go, I'm not coping. I need help. And to go and see a psychologist to help me work through and process things, that was an incredibly, empowering and enabling moment to move forward so whilst yes it was incredibly frightening and debilitating and and i couldn't function but once i put up my hand to say i'm not coping i need help that with my support network of my mom and my partner that i was able to get the courage to go and see someone and seek help um because that is one of the you know most important things about mental health one in four australians experience mental health issues but of that 70% 70% of people never seek help. They sit and suffer. And that's the, you know, and gosh, Mark, aren't we so lucky that we're here talking about it today? Because back in 99, most people would just suffer. And I'm glad that I was one of the rare ones that actually did take that step to seek help and was able to learn to manage um, and, and develop a plan to manage my mental health. And I'm so glad that, you know, here we are talking about it today because it's something we've all got to work through uh, together. It's, it is without doubt in my mind the greatest challenge that is facing society. The World Health Organization last year released a statistic that it is estimated by 2030 that mental health issues will have taken over all physical ailments combined. Cancer, heart attack, all physical ailments will be dwarfed by mental health issues facing society. So if it is not one of the number one topics that we're having with our friends, our family, our colleagues, uh, our kids, then I really, it's the only way that we're going to start to deal with things and support each other. Yeah. And my friend, I wish more people did talk about it. And I find it particularly less so with the males in our community. They feel like they've got to work through it themselves and they'll be okay tomorrow. One of the things that I've learned about depression, I've lived with a couple of people with depression in, in my past, is the fact that it, you might be able to manage it but it's, it never totally goes away. Have you got a comment around that? You know, what happens now for you? What sort of strategies have you now got to handle that stuff? No, it's a great question. And, you know, for me, it's uh, I need to manage for the rest of my life. And I've got three pillars that I look for in managing my mental health. Communication is number one. There's nothing good kept in. If you're, if you're not feeling great, put up your hand. So number one is communication. Number two for me is medication. Medication has been a key part. It's not for everyone. Just as communication is quite often for a lot of people, seeing a psychologist, it doesn't work, but they can communicate well with their support network, whether it be family or friends. So communication is is number one for me. Medication is an important part. It helps me manage the highs and lows that can go with anxiety and depression and, and deal with the chemical imbalance in my brain that is causing it. And number three is diet and exercise. It's scientifically proven that exercise does have a positive impact, whether it's just going for a walk or a run or doing whatever it may be. What you eat, it leads to sugar, high sugar base will lead to anxiety, particularly for younger people. So for me, it's three parts. And, and I know, you know, if I let the ball drop on maybe one of them, I can probably cover it with the other two. Yet there will be periods that I'm not eating as well. I'm probably drinking more than I should and I'm not exercising, but I know or I'm starting to bottle things up from a communication. I'm letting things, you know, stress me, whether it's with my family or with colleagues or whatever it is. And then I just have to take a step back and really look and go, am I focusing on all three pillars? And have I got them both all at a level that, you know, for me, it's very much about managing a dam level, right? You cannot let that water get to any more than three quarters because once it overflows, it's like a dam. And so I've got to always focus and identify my dam levels are probably at, well, they're at 70% now. I've got a huge amount of stress going on. We're doing a big acquisition. We're rolling out a computer system, whatever it may be. Okay, well, I've got to, that's something I've got to deal with. It's a period of moment. And I've got to now focus on my other pillars, okay? I'm, I'm working, my medication levels are right. Am I going, am I doing enough exercise? Got this relationship issue with 
someone in my family, well, maybe that's through because, yeah. and it's all about managing the dam levels because there's so many things and just going, okay, I'm in the eye of the storm. I've got this big acquisition, but then if I know I've got a relationship issue that's going on with someone with my family that I've left, I'm going to okay, why don't I just deal with that? And that's what I find, Mark, is if I just can make sure I'm executing the three pillars of the, my mental health plan, it can keep my dam levels at that point that I'm, I'm living a good life that I believe will be you know, sustainable in the long term because that's what it's about. There's not, you know, I went through many years of going on and off the medication. I would take the tablet six months. I was within three months, I was feeling fine. And then six months later, the depression would come back and I don't want to be weak. Why would I take a tablet? And then I take the tablet again and six months later, a low would come. And, you know, I worked again through communication with my psychologist and they were able to say to me, you know, if someone's got a blood pressure problem, what do they do? They take a tablet every day of their life. Well, if I've got a chemical imbalance that's leading to depression, take a tablet every day of your life. And that's my motto is there's no quick fixes with mental health. It's got to be something that is you can do day in, day out and make it part of your, part of you and sustainable and something that you can do every day of your life. So there will be people listening to this podcast, Damien, that'll be going, I'd love to speak to someone, but I'm at work. I don't want anyone at work to know that I'm feeling this way. I don't want anyone at work to know that I've got mental health because there might still be a stigma around it. People might think I'm weak. What would you say to those people that might be listening to this right now? Yeah, that's a really good question, Mark, and one that I, I get often asked quite regularly. You know, I'd say a couple of things. One is that most companies uh, will have an EAP program, and I really um, encourage anyone to utilize your company's EAP. They are completely anonymous. You know, we have on average, you know, about 200 people. We have on average eight, 10 people are using the EAP services each year. I have no idea who they are, completely anonymous. The EAP program is the Employee Assistance Program? Yeah, Employee Assistance yep. Program. And, you know, and we recently did some work with uh, CEOs of insurance brokers of which we saw that 90, we did a survey and 90% of insurance broking businesses do have an Employee Assistance Program as part of their employee welfare and specifically caters to uh, mental health issues. And so number one is I would utilise an EAP, which provides you with you know, access to psychologists and provide you with that support. And number two is, I really am a big believer that society has evolved and there is we are working in a much more supportive environment, a more supportive workplace. You know, the days of toughen up and get on with it, that's not how society, that's not how workplaces operate. You can feel comfortable to, to tell a colleague, to tell um, your employer, your manager, and it, you will feel supported. I really do think that if you're honest and put your hand up that I'm not feeling great, People will be receptive of it. I think the days and, and, you know, I always say to people, you know, you mentioned, Mark, that you've had, you know, friends and family members experience depression. I think the most important sign for, from the other side is to check in and just check yeah. in with people. If you see someone who is not feeling that great or that you can see they're a bit quiet, just check in. How are you feeling? Is, is everything okay at home? I think, so I think it goes both ways. But I think, you know, number one, you know, you're feeling issues. Talk to someone internally because I don't think you'll get that response. I think you'll get a response of support. And number yep. two, there is even if you do want to keep things yourself, then utilize the employee assistance program it's there to provide that independent and you know a confidential level of support. Yeah. We could talk about this all day, mate, because I, I absolutely love it, mainly particularly coming out of the back of COVID coming out of the pressure of people having to get back to work and all those sorts of things. And we're starting to see the mental health institutions getting inundated now. I want to, just before we get off this topic, talk a little bit about, you mentioned the Black Dog. I'd love you to explain a little bit about what that is because you're heavily involved with the Black Dog Institute. Yeah, so the Black Dog Institute is the world-leading research organisation that goes to carry out research as to what is the cause, what causes depression. Uh, there's many of great charities out there that are dealing with either the crisis, such as you know Beyond Blue and, and Lifeline, that are dealing with crisis. There's other charities that are dealing with you know the education and awareness space. But the, what really appealed to me with the Black Dog Institute is that's actually going to the long term and carrying out research, uh, clinically fact-based research as to what are the underlying reasons. Because we're not going to solve a problem as at the magnitude of the fact that by 2030, mental health take over physical, we've got to actually not just be trying to deal with 
prevention, we have to go to the cause. And really what the Black Dog Institute is a world-leading, renowned research organisation that is focused on on research. And so I'd had a long association with Black Dog once I had learnt to manage my own mental health. You know, I got involved in charity space by, you know, doing all these big bike rides, Madeley to Darwin, Perth to Broome, London to Barcelona. You know, between myself and the activity that Jewel, we raised over, you know, 750000 for the Black Dog Institute. And, and through that journey of being involved in awareness, whether it's wearing the bands or having this conversation or riding from Adelaide to Darwin and raising funds, um, and so much of those funds have come from the, the broking market that have supported me every step in my fundraising endeavours, whether it was that or shaving my head or jumping out of an aeroplane. Um, <laughs> all of those things have been done to, to raise funds for the Black Dog. But then they, they asked me to say, would I prepare to become an ambassador for Black Dog? Because they felt it would be really powerful for a CEO that everyone thinks CEOs can't have uh, mental health issues. And Damien's a flamboyant, successful person. How could he possibly have mental health issues? They're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. And they said, if you, you know, if you were prepared to be vulnerable and show your story as to it can impact everyone and there is a way of putting a plan in place to live a happy, fulfilled life. And it was the scariest thing, you know, um, I've done, you know, the first steps when I agreed to become an ambassador with the Black Dogs, they said, okay, we need you to. The first step, if you are prepared to go and tell others, and I do keynote addresses, you know, many times a month now to various organisations and community groups on sharing my my mental health lived experience. But the most important thing they said is you've got to tell you, have you told your family? And that was the, the, yeah, no, it really was, you know, mm. for me to sit down and tell my children exactly about, you know, they were kids. My mental health journey was my family and my support network. And then, you know, all of the Jewel family. And, you know, that was incredibly powerful, Mark, to tell a lot of the people in the, in the Jewel family, people like Leo have been with me for 17 years and they were tears going, Damien, how did we didn't know you were suffering and we should have yeah. been there to help. And I go, it's okay. It's, this is what it's about, about sharing it. And so, yeah, that's been an incredibly, you know, powerful and honoring experience i hope it helps and something that um we're all here to learn and you know being prepared to to be vulnerable and and share you know your darkest moments to help others is something i'm incredibly proud of that the black dog institute have given me the the opportunity to do so my friend if you've helped one person in this world it's one more that wasn't going to get any help so and i absolutely love the way you are so honest about your experiences you tell it warts and all and that's unfortunately it's rare i just love it for once i'm speechless let me um talk a little bit about some other things that are happening at the moment so We've seen this huge push now to working from home and this huge change around work-life balance and, and it sort of feeds off this, this employee mental health concerns. Post-COVID, how well do you think we are set up as a profession to deal with people returning to work and the new age order, right? Yeah, like I think we are. We've got, there is no doubt society has been through its greatest challenge in the last two years, but I honestly believe the greatest opportunity lies ahead and that, you know, the fact that we were all, you know, working 12-hour days and spending two hours commuting and me on a plane every day of the week, different places and constantly exhausted and feeling like I'm stretched and not being anywhere. I'm not doing the best dad. I'm not being the best friend. I'm not being the best father. I'm not being the best leader, colleague. And, you know, now what COVID's done is it's forced us to reset. It's forced us to embrace the technology that we're using here and it works. You know, we've all got this incredible opportunity to strike that work-life balance, to be able to, you know, I personally believe long-term we will be working three days a week in office and two days a week remotely. And I think that's a wonderful opportunity. It allows us to get the best of collaboration and having an experience and those connections, but it also gives us the freedom to be able to prioritize everything in life. And whether that's time with friends, your own physical and mental health, you know, we've just had our most successful year. We couldn't have done it without this technology. We wouldn't have done it. You know, I honestly believe we talk about video conferencing and it never really worked and just that this the pandemic forced us we've seen it works we can collaborate i feel closer to people uh, now than than i ever have of course the lockdowns are, are awful but once we can move to you know that period of of balance and true balance and use balance in every way whether it's working from home or working from office balance and whether it's being able to connect more often uh by uh, mediums rather than jumping on planes and losing 
you know, half the time commuting. It's just, I'm really excited. And I think, you know, we've got the fundamentals there now. Uh, the, the mediums work. You know, I think uh, employers and employees are realising that there's got to be a balance, right? And, the, you know, the thought of I'm never coming into the office, the thought of I'm going to work five days in the office, that's not balanced. And I think what we need to do is strike that balance. And, you know, the mediums are there. I believe society is there, whether it's employer and employees, that we've just got to find that balance. And it's, I think it's incredibly exciting. Yeah. And, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention, right? So we've created so many opportunities now to work with people without having to spend time, as you say, doing things like traveling, having to get on a plane, do all those sorts of things. Unless there's obviously that need for that personal connection, but maybe not as much as exactly. It's all about balance. I think, you know, balance is everything. And I've learned that in every part of life is that you've got to have balance. And I think, you know, the future working environment will all be about balance. So looking on some of the aspects of your career, I had a question around, you were living in in the UK, you were responsible for the UK, Ireland and Africa in one of your roles. Did you find that challenging from a personal perspective? Yeah, no, it was, um, you know, arriving in a new country, understanding new laws, understanding cultures, understanding the legal system, uh, the way they transact insurance. Yeah, there was a lot of challenges, but, you know, people are people and insurance is insurance. And if you do the hard work and ask questions and do your research, then, you know, I think there's always a way through. So thinking back, because, you, you know, you mentioned your 13-year-old self and you were going through a fair bit, of, fair bit of trauma at the time. If you were able to go back to your younger self and give yourself some advice, what sort of things would you say to that young man? Be honest, be happy, tell the truth and work hard. You know, the centre of everything is you've got to do things that you're happy. You've got to be happy and and you've got to be honest with yourself and, and those around you about what things make you happy. But you've got to be prepared to work hard, you know, whatever it is. If, you, if you're passionate about charity, if you're passionate about business, if you're passionate about whatever it may be, you've got to work hard because the world is competitive. And if you're passionate about something, you've got to go and get it. And getting it means you've got to work hard, roll up your sleeves and work hard. I think one of the challenges for a lot of people is finding something they are so passionate about. You're the perfect example of someone that's not just passionate about your work but you're also passionate about educating people on mental health and you're passionate about actually doing the hard yards whether it's you know jumping out of an airplane as you say or, or you know standing in front of your children and going hey this is the situation with me if you were giving advice to people that were either looking at getting into uh, the profession or who are already in it and wanting to advance their careers other than hard work what would you suggest that they do Always look to learn and develop, and that comes from you know asking questions. If you don't know something, ask and but but always be respectful. Like you know, I always say to someone when you join Jewel, everyone at Jewel wants to help you, but we're happy to answer any question you've got. But we don't want to answer the same question twelve times. So <laughs> if you come in to ask questions, and you don't have your phone to take notes or you bought a notepad. You know, my advice is just want to learn and develop, and so much opportunity in in our industry. It's a wonderful industry, but yeah, if you've got a, you know, that ethic to, to work hard and learn and develop and, you know, and have honest and respectful communication, I think is the pillars for, for building a great career in this, this industry is want to learn and communicate well. And speaking about that side of things, if you think about us as a profession, how well do you think we're meeting clients' expectations? And I'm talking about the end client here how well do you think we're meeting those expectations the insurance industry's got an incredible track record of supporting um society through crisis and you know if you only have to look at you know the work that the industry did whether it was new zealand quakes and any of the major cat disasters that have happened i think you know the insurance industry you know hits the rubber when it comes to managing crisis and supporting society i think what you know the the industry's got to be doing can do better is is the BAU is really dealing with you know non-crisis time you know work on these longer term issues whether it's you know provide you know mental health whether it's cyber insurance look at these emerging risks climate change because I think we've got a great track record of of dealing with crisis but it's known crisis rather than innovatively investing in future risk is I think is probably the area that we could do more work I think we're doing a great job in in understanding now that our industry needs to change 
you know, and the we've got to deal with the frictional costs of our industry. You know, it's a very unique industry where, you know, if you've got someone who's got a risk that they want to insure and you've got someone who's prepared to insure that risk being capital, that, you know, we have a situation that, you know, out of every $100, $50 is lost to the chain, whether it's the retail broker, the wholesale broker, the insurer, the MGA, we've got to deal with that. And I think we do, we're really recognising the technology and investing to ensure that we drip the cost out because, you know, if it's not Google or Amazon or someone will come and try to disrupt. So I think what we're doing, that's another thing that we are doing really well as an industry is recognising that it's not sustainable that 50% of the premium is being lost to the transaction and only 50% is doing actually protecting the risk that someone wants to offload. I think we've got more work to do there, but I think I'm really proud of the steps that we're seeing uh, the industry do to, to invest in in managing that cost of the services we provide. So, yeah, that'd be my two things, Mark, is one is we're grading prices. We're doing a good job in making us as efficient as possible to ensure that we're not disrupted. Then there's work to do on on those future long-term emerging risks. Yeah. And just talking about that, do you think we've got the imagination or the, or the foresight to be able to create those products for those emerging risks, because we, you know, we're traditionally a very conservative profession. We're very slow to respond to changes, generally speaking, in my view. I just wonder what you're seeing. Yeah, no, I, I think there is significant investments are being made to, to deal with that. I, I look at our own group, the Howden Group, is investing in in a team that is purely focused on on climate change and resilience. And you know, we recently just developed with the Red Cross the Danish Red Cross, the first volcanic cap bond, and what that did, it was able to provide charities with access to funds much earlier in a humanitarian disaster. And that's sort of where you can see that, you know, the insurance industry is developing solutions to proactively have the funds available so they can be deployed as soon as a crisis happens rather than, you know, that's where it's going to have the strongest impact is right at the humanitarian disaster. So I think the industry is starting to, to look more with those emerging risks and how can we put the tools in place before the crisis and make sure that when the, if the crisis happens, we're able to provide support much quicker rather than in a reactive way. That's fantastic. I hadn't heard of that before. I reckon that's amazing. So just talk me through what you're seeing in terms of the next five to 10 years. So if we look back at the last five to 10 years, right, leaving COVID aside, we've seen so much change in the industry. You know, you've seen the the breaking cluster groups growing. Uh, You've seen insurance companies, you know, banding together. You've seen true global access to insurers and reinsurers because of technology. You've seen, you know, supermarkets selling insurance. Well, over the next five to 10 years, what's your view in terms of where our profession and the industry is likely to go? It's a really good question, Mark, and I think we're on the right path, but we've got to amp it up further. And uh, consolidation, investing to make sure that we're adding value in every step of the chain rather than cost is going to only accelerate further. Of the premium being lost to the transaction isn't sustainable. We need to get that down to probably 25%. And that is going to happen by further consolidation, further investment in technology and digital marketing and communication to ensure that we are as efficient. Anyone who's performing a role in the transaction has to justify their services and has to be as efficient in their services as possible uh, because ultimately we've got an end client that has a risk and we've got capital that's prepared to take the risk and the chain must be more uh, as efficient as possible. So I think we're on the right path. I think the intensity that we're going to see in M&A will only continue. The intensity and the investment in innovation, uh, whether it's, you know, automation, whether it's uh, digital tools, but, you know, we need to keep investing further to ensure that we are as efficient because there will be the disruptors that are out there. And a lot of people talk, whether it'll be Google, Amazon, I don't want to find out. Mm. I want us to be ahead and make sure that we are as efficient and fit for purpose for our clients to make sure our industry is sustainable in providing its services, which is ultimately addressing the risk that someone's one client's got a risk and there's capital prepared to take that risk. And we've got to be as efficient and ruthless in everything that we do in our part of the transaction. So two final questions to you, my friend. The first one centers around cyber. You know, most businesses understand business insurance, but for some reason, we seem to struggle to get 
people to understand this whole cyber concept. People think, I've got a firewall in place, I should be fine. What sort of views do you have in terms of how we go about educating the business community around cyber? A really good question. I'll I'll probably look at it from a, a different way. I don't think we do understand cyber. And the reason is the risks associated moving so quickly. All I believe we can do is insure against, provide insurance support via a cyber policy, but the goalposts are moving so quickly. Social engineering were the claims we're facing. Then it was ransomware, now multi-factor authentication. Whatever tools that are put in place, cyber criminals are finding the next way to move forward. So in all honesty, I don't believe cyber is stable. I don't know whether it ever will be stable, but I think, therefore, anything you don't understand, you should be insuring against. Anything that you think is business critical, you go to bed at sleep at night and go, I really don't understand that, so I better make sure that I'm buying insurance. That may not be the, the perfect explanation, but I'm, I'm being honest that I, you know, we even as insurers, we are, we're dealing with the risks, the claims that are coming in in real time. We duly be the number three cyber insurer in Australia, and we are constantly finding new trends, bugs that whatever, you know, we think we've dealt with with multi-factor authentication, but then there's email filtering scans that are coming out. And so it's constantly evolving. And I think, you know, if there's a risk that you can't quantify and you're unsure of, you are best to insure against. I think that's from a client's point of view. And then that puts the challenge on us as the industry to try to price that risk to ensure that it's sustainable in the future. But I honestly think markets, It's moving so quickly. All I could say to everyone is invest in, we're finding it now in that, you know, we've just rolled out a a new system to 9,000 brokers to use it. And we've, you know, we've got to explain to get your login. You have to update it every 30 days. You have to have multi-factor authentication. We have to have password controls. And that's just part of society. And we've got to embed that culture in society. But even there, I think things are moving so quickly that the only way an insured can do is to make sure they've got insurance in place. And yep. we've got to make sure that we're dealing with the next threat that's put on society. Yeah. Underlining your point, I think it was last week where the US government posted a $1 million reward for any information on the dark side hackers. So they can't even work out what's going on. So you're absolutely 100% spot on. Final question to you, sir. Where to next for Damien Coates and Duel? Yeah, no, we're, um, we turn 18 in March. We become an adult thought of as that means but yeah no it's been a incredible 18 years and so excited for what the future is is ahead we're just going to continue to work with brokers to to ask them you know what are their uninsured exposures what are the things that they're worried about for their sme clients and we'll work on coming up with solutions and work with technology and our digital communication to be able to ensure that we're engaging with our clients and being responsive to their needs Everything that's happening in life, I've got a a wonderful family. I'm getting married next year, and I'm you know really excited about you know everything that's happening. And uh, and working with the team at Jewel, I'm I'm so proud to be you know working with such a group of people that are my friends and I respect and admire. And I'm just privileged to be a a part of the team that's there and and having some fun, but working hard, as we said at the very start. Absolutely. Damien Coates, you are such an inspiration, my friend. Thank you so much for appearing on the Business Made Personal podcast. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for lending us your ears. Please remember to click follow on your podcast app or subscribe at bmppodcast.com.au so we can give you a sneak peek of our next guest. Until next time, I'm Mark Silvera, and you've been listening to Business Made Personal.